welcome to Psych Exchange. My name is Adrian. And my name is Sophie. And the two of us are PhD candidates at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're both in the lab of Dr. Gregory Corder. And I also happen to be co-mentored by Dr. Julie Blendy. So the purpose of Psych Exchange is to really generate a collection of more in-depth conversations with experts in both the academic research and the entrepreneurial sides of psychedelic science, given the massive generation of interest over the last few years since prohibition started to end. Um, and basically, we we know that out there right now, there's a ton of content for lay people who have a passing interest in psychedelics and why they're coming into the social consciousness again and, and you know, perhaps the impacts they could have on mental health. However, I started to notice in listening to these podcasts, uh, the same information starts to get repeated quite a bit. And it would be really nice if there was some free uh, content out there that wasn't in totally, you know, academic writing speech um, for people that already have some basic knowledge of psychedelics, uh, but want to really understand more deeply where that knowledge comes from and how it's being applied in our society. In addition to that, Sophie and I, we have been really close friends for the past three years. And many of our initial kind of foundations of friendship and what has kind of kept us so close to this day includes our mutual enthusiasm for neuroscience and our excitement over psychedelic compounds and what they could truly do in terms of advancing the way we view and treat so many of these uh, disorders. And so with that said, it's really our privilege to kind of share aspects of our excitement in this space to the broader audience. So first, uh, Adrian and I are going to introduce ourselves so you guys can get to know us better. And then I'm going to give a little bit of the background on the current state of psychedelic research and what we know. And then we'll segue into recent advancements into psychedelic entrepreneurship and biotech. And so what is the difference between clinical stage companies versus companies in preclinical development, as well as what are some kind of key players within the industry? And with that said, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And welcome to Psych Exchange. So since I was young, I think I was always intrigued and curious about how so many of our behaviors are rooted from thoughts, feelings, and activities that all stem from the brain, whether it's the joy I felt from relationships, travels, or even simply working out on the yoga mat can all be connected to various reward processes in the brain. But on the flip side, many of the darker aspects of human behavior, such as one's addictions, a whole host of mental health disorders, or overall just feelings of disconnection with oneself or the world around us can also be connected to maladaptive brain activity. And in addition to that, I think my initial pull toward neuroscience was actually quite personal in that there have been many individuals, whether it's family, friends, or friends of friends, whom I care so deeply about suffer from pretty debilitating mental health disorders. And so the fundamental question that always rang in my head was, what is this underlying neurobiological mechanism that is ringing so kind of loudly in these individuals' heads where it's having such a pivotal influence in why this individual is feeling and behaving in the way that they are? 
what is the neurobiology that's going on and can this be modified in any way so that they can one day feel better? And then I later learned that there are medications that are targeted towards a wide host of these various mental health indications, but unfortunately, they don't always work, whether it's they take too long to actually work or they simply just never reach any sort of effective you know, phenotypes over time. I just simply did not understand kind of why there is this overall failure in many of the drugs for many of these people. And so kind of in addition to that, growing up, substance use disorders were always introduced to me and discussed as a moral failing, when in actuality, I later learned that addiction is truly a brain disease that can be characterized by these neural circuits that can become dysregulated upon progressing throughout various stages of addiction, whether it's the onset progression, persistence, and abstinence, which unfortunately oftentimes leads to relapse. And so throughout my undergrad years, I formed this fascination by how the nervous system can be modulated through drug action, whether it can be caffeine, alcohol, psychedelics, as well as drugs that are recognized as drugs of abuse, such as cocaine or opioids. And kind of in tandem with my curiosity in this field known as neuropharmacology, I was also really excited and intrigued by, wow, there are these class of compounds that could actually kind of change our standard of care for many of these mental health indications through the use of psychedelic compounds. So some of the labs that really um, kind of sparked my interest all stem from Johns Hopkins, such as Roland Griffith's work looking at clinical populations for people nearing end of life, smoking cessation, or patients with cancer suffering from anxiety. And I think overall, this, um, you know, these years worth of fascination and brain behavior and this kind of personal conviction to getting to know, you know, what's happening in the brains of patients with addiction eventually drove me to pursue a PhD in neuropharmacology over here at the University of Pennsylvania, where I'm now studying the neural networks that mediate uh, the addictive, the addiction cycle throughout various stages of opioid use disorder. However, a couple years into my PhD, I had this overall kind of question. There are so many cool innovations and discoveries that are being pioneered in biomedical research, whether it's at Penn in the US or all over the world. But what is this critical step that would enable these exciting discoveries to actually leave the lab to actually benefit patients' lives in a positive way instead of having those cool scientific discoveries just kind of marinating on the lab bench. And then I realized, okay, this idea of commercializing these technologies through biotech entrepreneurship can really be this key that actually creates a whole host of positive impact in terms of biomedical uh, research. And so through a whole host of amazing mentors, colleagues, and various biotech-related organizations, I really had this um, you know, amazing experience of translating my scientific enthusiasm into learning more about the applications of scientific discoveries through the lens of entrepreneurship. And so you know, through organizations such as Penn Biotech Group, as well as Nucleate, this really kind of formed my interest in merging my interests in science as well as biotech. And then it was about maybe a year or so ago where I realized that nothing would make me more kind of excited and enthusiastic than to amalgamate my passions for neuroscience, 
startup culture, interacting with founders, as well as, of course, psychedelic treatments for a whole host of nervous system disorders. And so with that said, kind of in pursuit of this, I had the utter privilege of pursuing these interests at Palo Santo, a psychedelic-based investment fund. And this has probably been one of the most meaningful, learning-enriched experiences where I could really interact with founders who similarly care so much about making changes in how we treat uh, mental health disorders and CNS disorders abroad through kind of harnessing the potential impact of psychedelic compounds. And so overall, I think a lot of my pull toward neuroscience and psychedelic research, of course, it stemmed from a lot of curiosity and uh, fascination, but also on the flip side, kind of this um, impact in observing a lot of the human suffering that's really derived from these dysregulated brain states. And, um, you know, despite this, I do have enormous hope that much of the research that we are pursuing in the lab, especially through psychedelic compounds, kind of in combination with efforts to commercialize these innovations may ultimately contribute to hopefully, uh, you know, the developments of effective pharmacological strategies that can hopefully address many of, you know, today's pain points throughout society. Thank you so much for that, Adrian. Um, yeah, I think actually we have a lot in common in our backgrounds and how we got in to um, our interests in psychedelic neuroscience, but uh, that our careers are taking like two different angles, right, at that problem. So uh, <laughs> for me, uh, uh, it all started as a kid. I was always, you know, hypnotized by science. I was so um, passionate about I, I would always watch Nova on PBS and I would always watch Into the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman. And for a while, I wanted to be an astronaut and a microbiologist all over the spectrum. But then I I started getting into the arts a little bit more as a kid. And and I was just like, how do humans do this? Like, why do humans do the things they do? Why are things rewarding? And I had this fantastic math teacher who encouraged me uh, to meet with him every week over the course of middle school. And I I was very like not confident in my math skills at the time. Um, but then we got super close and he was a retired physicist from Berkeley, actually. His name is Dr. Wallman. Um, and, you know, to this day, I he's one of the most important mentors I've ever had. Um, and for my eighth grade graduation, he gave me three books, one on physics, one in genetics, and then one called A Telltale Brain by V.S. Ramachandran, which was sort of this Oliver Saxian sort of anecdotal approach to uh, describing the neural basis of various neurological disorders the author encountered in the clinic. And um, I just fell in love with it. And in high school, I sought out opportunities to work in laboratories in New York City. Um, and uh, over the course of the next seven years, uh, I just was in neuroscience. And much like Adrian, my initial um, uh, research experiences in neuroscience were all in studying drugs of abuse, which to me was a fantastic way of getting at the question, why do humans do what they do? Because these drugs hijack the endogenous circuitry that you already have to help organize your goals and behaviors and, uh, and, you know, how do you organize the little actions that lead to these larger goals and the drugs uh, of, and these drugs of abuse uh, target that circuitry and hijack it. So it's almost a way of, of getting at that question. Right. Um, and I love that. And I thought that that's what I would be doing for a very long time. Right. 
because meanwhile, uh, it was not allowed to study psychedelics at the time that Adrian and I were uh, starting out, basically. Um, but then, you know, in college, I became a philosophy minor. I had a deep interest in consciousness. What is it? Why do we experience? How can we experience, you know, the sublime like beauty, right? What is that? How do you explain that evolutionarily? And, you know, also, why are we able to think about ourselves in these like meta terms? How can we think about our own consciousness? How is that possible? And, you know, while it's difficult to get at those neuroscientifically, um, a drug that makes those qualities really apparent and actually, um, you know, really emphasizes those experiences are psychedelic drugs. And um, I thought it was going to be a long time until I was going to be able to study that. But then when I came uh, to UPenn and started my PhD, um, my mentor, Dr. Greg Corder, was interested in starting a, a branch of psychedelic study because now all of a sudden, because it turns out psychedelics potentially have massive impact implications for a variety of disorders. Now we can study it. And so I initially joined his lab with the intention of doing an opioid abuse project in line with some of my previous experiences, but we pivoted. And so I have the immense privilege of uh, working on a psychedelic project for my PhD, looking at um, how what are the neural mechanisms underlying um, the acceleration of fear extinction by psilocybin? And fear extinction is a behavior that, you know, may have some similarities to PTSD recovery in humans. But aside from that, really gets at sort of cognitive flexibility related behaviors and emotional related behaviors. So in that sense, it seems somehow translatable to uh, the types of uh, flexibility and learning that humans need in their day-to-day -day lives, right? And that may be dysregulated in various uh, mental health indications. Um, so that's a bit of my background. And with that, I'm going to go into now giving you a little bit of background on where the state of psychedelic science is today from an academic research perspective. So First of all, there's uh, four or five different classes of psychedelics that you may hear people referring to. There's a lot of debate as to whether to call all of these classes of drugs psychedelics, but I'm just going to do an overview of what everyone is may or may not be referring to when they say psychedelics. Uh, so first, you have your classical psychedelics, serotonergic psychedelics, which include LSD, psilocybin, DMT. And this is, you know, that classical fractal you know, deity encountering type of experience that you might have. And and these are the ones that you may have heard of, right? Psilocybin is in magic mushrooms, DMT is in ayahuasca, etc. And then you can have uh, dissociative psychedelics or dissociative anesthetics, hallucinogens, right? These are all words that people are sort of trying to center the conversation around. Um, and these include ketamine, PCP, and dextromethorphan. And uh, these drugs actually are all antagonists of the NMDA receptor, which is an excitatory receptor in the brain. And that's really interesting. This is opposed, right, to serotonergic psychedelics, which um, which bind to the serotonin-2 family of receptors and the serotonin-1 family, amongst others. And then you have your intactogens. Um, that These are uh, serotonergic psychedelics that also have an amphetamine element to them. So not only do they act at serotonin receptors, but they also can have properties that increase neurotransmitter release by inhibiting their reuptake and, and 
stuff like that. And that includes MDMA ecstasy, right? Um, and uh, if you, if people, if listeners have ever tried them, they'll know that these experiences do differ meaningfully from the classic psychedelics. And then you have onerogens, which means dream generating, right? Uh, and this includes ibogaine and salvia. These have their own unique sort of set of effects, but uh, something that uh, they have in common is they both bind to the kappa opioid receptor, which is a very different one than the one than the one that um, your classical opioids of abuse bind to. Um, and interestingly, they're really good for treating opioid use disorder. So that includes ibogaine and salvia. And then finally, there's another class that are acetylcholine receptor uh, modulators, and this includes scopolamine and atropine. And uh, these are derived from the detora uh, plant, deadly nightshade, belladonna. Uh, so it was used as a poison, but uh, they have very... Uh, they, they have very different effects than the other drugs, but they are absolutely hallucinogens and have great indications for nicotine cessation. So if you're going to investigate psychedelics, the first thing you might be interested in studying is changes in brain activity during and after drug administration in humans. After all, we're, we are the ones who know for certain that we experience a psychedelic trip and we are the ones whose health outcomes we are interested in. This has been the project of some of the more well-known scientists of the contemporary psychedelic renaissance. So, for instance, Robin Carhart-Harris and others at Imperial College London, Franz Wallenweider and others at the University of Zurich, Roland Griffiths and others at Johns Hopkins. Through advents such as the Mystical Experience Questionnaire and classic technology such as fMRI, PET imaging, and EEG, fundamental discoveries have been made regarding the effects of psychedelics in humans. In the work of PET imaging, it's been demonstrated that psilocybin's subjective effects are highly correlated with the binding of the serotonin 2A receptor. With fMRI and EEG imaging, we've revealed that psychedelics change the way regions of the brain interact with each other and increase different measures of neural entropy and complexity, which may perhaps explain the fluidity and diversity of conscious experience during a psychedelic trip. However, it is close to impossible to perform causal studies of brain activity in humans due to both technological and ethical constraints and the techniques that we have to record human brain activity, which are very low resolution. For instance, fMRI can tell you very specifically where blood flow is changing in the brain, but not really when, which makes it difficult to correlate brain activity patterns with certain experiences and behaviors. Meanwhile, EEG can reveal minute fluctuations in electrical brain activity over time, but its spatial resolution is weak. Ideal spatiotemporal resolution might be, say, on the order of single neurons, immediate electrical responses, and the subsequently initiated signaling responses that occur on the order of minutes to days. In plated lab-grown neurons, or living neurons dissected from an animal, we have many techniques that enable us to measure these outcomes. For instance, the laboratories of Dr. David Olson at UC Davis and Dr. Brian Roth at UNC Chapel Hill have performed some of the seminal work characterizing the electrical and molecular sequelae of psychedelics in neurons. For instance, by hooking up neurons to voltmeters and ammeters, we know that not only can classical psychedelics excite neurons through the serotonin 2A and C receptors acutely, but that these cells remain more excitable than they were before on the order of hours and days. By imaging these cells with high-resolution microscopes, we know that after stimulation with all four classes of psychedelics, these neurons grow more dendrites, dendritic spines, and synapses than they had before. 
Finally, we know that if we block certain pathways relating to gene expression and protein synthesis during psychedelic stimulation, that this effect is blocked, demonstrating that psychedelics excite neurons in such a way as to induce protein synthesis, neural growth, and changes in how that cell responds to stimulation. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've probably heard the term psychedelic and neuroplasticity thrown around together constantly. Well, this is what we mean when we say that psychedelics enhance neuroplasticity. They cause neurons to grow in ways that could allow them to create new connections and process information differently. Well, this is obviously very cool, but also, so what? Neurons in a dish comprise highly simplified systems compared to the complex and diverse system of the whole brain in a living creature. Furthermore, cocaine, opioids, and amphetamines also cause neuroplasticity, but that neuroplasticity can lead to substance use disorders, depression, and anxiety. How do we know whether psychedelic neuroplasticity is quote-unquote good, that is, subjectively and behaviorally desirable? To understand the effects of psychedelic-induced neuroplasticity on behavior, we need to isolate certain physiological effects of psychedelics and the neural circuits in which they occur and test them in animals that can show us whether or not they are behaving more or less adaptively. The Olson and Roth laboratories are also contributing to behavioral and neural circuits research, along with another prominent scientist, Dr. Alex Kwan at Cornell University. In these studies, we can use a wide array of behavioral assays. For instance, fear conditioning and extinction, like what I use, learned helplessness, sucrose self-administration, and the force swim assay, amongst many others, to try and get at exactly which behaviors and types of learning are impacted effectively by psychedelics, and under which conditions most optimally? Are psychedelics more important for behaviors including motivation, cognitive flexibility, emotion, memory? Well, it turns out actually all of the above. The behaviors impacted by psychedelics and their pharmacological properties have led to the hypothesis that psychedelics act to rapidly induce long-lasting change through serotonin receptors in the cortex. To investigate this, Dr. Kwan used two-photon microscopy to measure neural activity and morphology in living mice that have been exposed to psilocybin, ketamine, and 5-MeO-DMT, and demonstrated that many of the changes we've seen in a dish also occur in frontal cortical neurons in the rodent, and that the neuroplastic changes induced 24 hours after drug administration can be preserved for at least a month, lending credence to the hypothesis that neuroplasticity underlies psychedelic-improved behaviors. Still, more work needs to be done. For instance, many subcortical regions have serotonin receptors. How do they factor into this model of psychedelic-induced neuroplasticity? Also, can we use technologies like pharmacology, optogenetics, and dreads to interfere with the neuroplastic effects of psychedelics and would these block their behavioral effects? Because if not, that would debunk the hypothesis, right? So these experiments should be done. Psychedelics are also highly polypharmacological. How do all of their actions on different receptors coalesce to produce their subjective and cognitive effects? Can different effects be isolated? Is it possible to have optimal therapeutic benefit without all of this dirty pharmacology? Or do all of these systems need to be modulated in tandem? Is the acute increase in entropy and complexity in neural activity in humans important for the neuroplasticity that occurs later? How do external conditions impact the behavioral outcomes of a psychedelic trip? And where do these factors interact in the brain? How do set, setting, and substance alchemize into either enlightenment or psychosis? These are only some of the questions scientists are arduously trying to answer nowadays. And the scientists I mentioned are but a small fraction of those making an impact. Ultimately, why do we care about how psychedelics work if the fact is that they do indeed work? Well, for one, they don't work in everybody in every circumstance. 
At worst, they can induce manic episodes and psychosis in people with predispositions and a bad trip in just about anyone. And those psychedelics that aren't cardiotoxic, as all naturally derived serotonin 2 agonists are to some extent, they can be addictive like ketamine. Hopefully, the science of today will lead to optimized therapeutic protocols, drugs tailored for individuals with particular arrays of coexisting psychiatric disorders, and safer drugs that can be therapeutically administered without supervision, which would raise accessibility of treatments for working class people that can't necessarily afford to take a whole day or two off and cut the check for a highly qualified trip sitter. Nevertheless, the drugs currently available, whether by nature or design, display undeniable efficacy in groups of otherwise treatment-resistant patients and need to be implemented in the clinic. Now, psychedelic trip aside, how does the trip from the lab to the clinic go down? For this, I'll pass it on to Adrian. Thank you so much, Sophie. I think what really intrigues me about everything that you just shared is it makes me realize that the more we know, the more we realize that we know so little and that there's so many questions to interrogate. And that's why I have so much respect and honor for the work that you're doing to you know, better unlock a whole array of these questions. And so with that said, in parallel with this rise in psychedelic academic-based work, it's also been really exciting to see this rise in psychedelic-based companies and organizations increasingly show pursuit in targeting these mental health and general CNS indications that so desperately need new solutions and perspectives. And so some indications of high interest include anxiety disorders, such as social anxiety disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. We also have depression, such as treatment-resistant depression, as well as major depressive disorder. We also have post-traumatic disorder. We have a whole array of substance use disorders, such as opioid use disorders and alcohol use disorder, as well as other indications of interest, such as migraines and pain, and also many other indications that might show enormous efficacy with psychedelic compounds that are being investigated as we speak. And we know that the pandemic has only worsened the severity of these indications and has only increased the number of individuals who are unfortunately suffering from mental health disorders. And we can see this having direct ties with prevalence rates and unfortunately deaths that are attributed to these worsening conditions. Moreover, the economic costs from direct and indirect healthcare costs are enormous. So for major depressive disorder, we know that they're at around $326 billion. For opioid use disorder, we know that these costs are around $875 billion and PTSD around $231 billion. And so with that said, you know, despite um, some of these darker statistics, we do see some level of hope and enthusiasm as there are numerous companies and organizations that are actively investigating the efficacy of this of these psychedelic based compounds for many of the indications just stated. And so with that said, we'll now cover a bit around what we know about psychedelic drug development. And so drug development can be primarily divided into two different umbrellas, clinical trials as well as preclinical development. And so for clinical trials, this comprises of trials that are being investigated in human volunteer populations to assess the effectiveness and safety of various compounds. So within clinical trials, there are three phases, phase one, two, and three. So for phase one, the purpose here is to ensure that the compound is actually safe in humans and to determine the potential side effects of a compound. And this normally takes place with a small group of healthy volunteers, such as from 20 to 80 human volunteers. 
We then uh, move into phase two. So the goal of phase two is to determine the effectiveness in treating the particular disease indication and to further evaluate safety and toxicology. And this normally takes place um, in a larger number of volunteers who have the disease indication. This could span from a few dozen volunteers to around a couple hundred people. For phase three, this involves a much larger group of volunteers, and the goal here is to further confirm the efficacy and to monitor side effects and involves several hundred to around 3,000 people. And clinical trials are incredibly rigorous, time-intensive, and expensive. And so following a successful phase three clinical trial, it is possible for a company, organization, or group to then submit an NDA or a new drug application to the FDA. And this is kind of like this formal step to ask the FDA for approval for a drug, for it to be marketed based on the drug's safety and efficacy that has been rigorously tested through these clinical trials. And so some companies and organizations within the psychedelic space that are now within this clinical trial realm include MAPS. Um, so MAPS stands for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and MAPS has just completed part two of their phase three trial for MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I'm sure many of you have heard of MAPS before. Uh, MAPS is this nonprofit research and educational organization that was established in 1986 that was founded by Rick Doblin and is established in San Jose. And the goal of MAPS is to develop medical, legal, and cultural context for people to understand, you know, careful uses of psychedelics. And so in addition to their recent completion of their part two phase three study, the FDA also granted MAPS with breakthrough therapy designation for MAPS's um, MDMA compound for PTSD in August 2017. And so the purpose of this breakthrough therapy designation is that it establishes the FDA's acknowledgement that there is an unmet medication need in the population of individuals suffering from PTSD and that the current standard of care for PTSD is simply not doing it, and that there's this potential for MDMA to offer significant improvements over these existing therapies for treating PTSD. And so if a company or organization is granted with breakthrough therapy designation, this could shave off a couple years throughout clinical development, which, of course, is a very long kind of arduous process. And so another company within this realm includes Compass Pathways. And so Compass Pathways recently concluded their phase 2B study in December 2021 for their COMP360 psilocybin formulation alongside therapy for treatment-resistant depression. Another organization within this clinical trial phase includes Usona Institute, which has been undergoing their phase three trial for psilocybin for major depressive disorder. And in addition to MAPS, Usona Institute has also been granted from the FDA breakthrough therapy designation for psilocybin for MDD back in 2019. However, you know, many companies are earlier in development, and we call this preclinical development. And the goal here is before any compounds are even administered to humans, it must be a rigorous kind of investigation that these compounds show general safety measures um, in animal models, primarily starting in rodent models, uh, prior to entering any human bodies in the future. And so various stages of preclinical development include target identification and validation. 
And so the goal here is to identify the target role of your disease indication and to ensure that it is even druggable, meaning that this target activity can be modulated from compound activity. The next phase is now screening and hit identification. So the aim here is to screen compounds, either through a virtual screen, a target-based assay, or a phenotypic assay in order to identify compound hits or these various hits that can hit the target of your disease indication. In addition, it's great in this phase to get an early sense of structure-activity relationship, meaning you know, what is the relationship between various chemical structures of a compound and its associated biological effects in modulating the overall uh, disease circuitry or activity within this disease indication. The next phase is hit validation and hit to lead. So here we want to validate our hits and generate any lead compounds. And this could involve expanding on the structure activity relationship of your compound, as well as begin thinking about the various pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties of a compound. And so for pharmacokinetic activity, this includes how a drug is actually absorbed, metabolized, distributed, and eventually eliminated in the body. And in terms of pharmacodynamic activity, this further investigates what are the key receptors um, that are being targeted from a compound as well as various downstream signaling cascades as a result of this compound activity with its various receptors. Moving on, we have lead optimization. And so the goal here is to further understand a compound's target engagement, its mechanism of action, develop biomarkers, as well as further address its safety and pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic uh, parameters as well as further optimize the compound in order to avoid off-target effects. And so an example of this here is that for many psychedelic compounds, we know that potential safety hazard is its activity on peripheral 5-HT2B receptors um, that are located peripherally, which could affect um, individuals' cardiovascular act activity, especially if they might have some predisposed cardiovascular risks. So the goal here might be to avoid some of this peripheral 5-HT2B um, activity engagement. So moving on, we also have lead development, which we want to further dive into safety, pharmacokinetics, metabolism, as well as efficacy in a disease model, as well as further evaluate drug toxicity. Uh, this sounds like a very kind of long, kind of complex process, but kind of wrapping up here, the general last phase in preclinical development is IND enabling studies. This stands for investigational new drug um, enabling studies. And so uh, throughout this phase, we want to further evaluate the potential toxicity that a drug may have prior to human studies and prior to you know estimating the starting doses for clinical trials. And so some companies that are currently undergoing preclinical development include Bexon Biomedical, and we're really excited to share that we are interviewing the CSO and co-founder of Bexon Biomedical, Dr. Jeffrey Becker. And so Bexon Biomedical now has a whole platform of various compounds of or compounds under investigation. But one of kind of the key devices and compounds that uh, Bexin has pioneered includes this ketamine formulation that is delivered subcutaneously through wearable medical pump. And you'll learn much more about Bexin's uh, really cool technology through our episode. Another company includes Delix Therapeutics. 
Um, and Delix has developed non-hallucinogenic psychedelic compounds referred to as psychoplastogens. And a key player in Delix Therapeutics includes postdoctoral fellow Dr. Lindsay Cameron, who has actually developed a non-hallucinogenic version of ibogaine known as tabernanthalog. And we're really excited to share that we'll also be interviewing Dr. Cameron. Other companies includes, include Gilgamesh, and they have several psychedelic analogs in pipeline um, that will be targeting the NMDA receptor, serotonergic receptor subtypes, as well as various compounds that are analogs of ibogaine. We also have Tactogen, which has been developing a novel analog of MDMA in order to create um, a gentler kind of MDMA analog that will also uh, lead to reduced neurotoxicity and a more you know gentle uh, process known as the come down following MDMA administration. In terms of all the various psychedelic companies out there, this could also be generally segmented into psychedelic public companies and psychedelic private companies. So a psychedelic public company means that this company um, has public ownership and so their shares can be freely traded with the public on a stock exchange. And so a psychedelic public company includes um, a Thai Life Sciences. And so they actually IPO'd or went public back in June 2021. And so Atai has a robust pipeline of compounds covering a diverse array of indications throughout varying level levels of development. And these various programs are carried out by Atai's affiliate companies. So one of them includes Perception Neuroscience, and they have developed um, an R-ketamine analog for treatment-resistant depression. We also have Demarx IB, which has developed an ibogaine analog for opioid use disorder, as well as Empath Bio, which has developed an MDMA derivative for PTSD, um, as well as additional programs within Atai's robust pipeline of compounds. We also have Compass Pathways, and they IPO'd back in September 2020. And like mentioned earlier, they have developed a COMP360 psilocybin formulation accompanied with psychotherapy for treatment-resistant depression. And other public companies include Fieldtrip, Celo Therapeutics, GH Research, MindBed, Cybin, MindCure, and the list definitely goes on. But now segueing into psychedelic private companies, so this means that a company is held under private ownership. So a company can issue stocks and have shareholders, but their shareholders do not trade publicly. This means that a company is owned by founders, management, and a group of private investors. So this includes, but is not limited to, Delix Therapeutics, Gilgamesh, Tactogen, Cygen, Baxin Biomedical, Sensorium Therapeutics, Beckley SciTech, Journey Clinical, and etc., so as we can see here, a lot of the innovation, in my opinion, kind of stems from really cool research that stems from academic-based work and labs and scientists. However, what's really cool is that much of this work can actually leave the lab walls and really enter the scope of psychedelic companies that may have kind of the speed, resources, and funding to really expedite a lot of this um, research and development in order to kind of enter a whole kind of platform of companies and indications of interest that hopefully, you know, with rigorous preclinical testing could lead to clinical testing and, you know, one day actually have an impact into being marketed and having a pivotal impact in many of these clinical CNS-based indications that, um, as we mentioned, so desperately need new solutions.
So to conclude, we're basically just going to say what some of our hopes for the future of psychedelic research and business uh, could be. So I think for me, my really big hope for psychedelic research is that we can use the basic science findings that people are, are creating in the lab to discover optimized psychedelic drugs for perhaps different diseases and different comorbidities of diseases. So for instance, perhaps there's a modified version of psilocybin that's really good specifically for the mixture of chronic pain and depression, right? Um, so I think that would be an incredible goal so we could create this tailored suite of drugs potentially. Um, and I think my overall hope really is that uh, we're able to implement these things in the market in a way that leads to really accessible healthcare that is something that's affordable and easy for people to get. So for instance, perhaps maybe there's a future in which a working class person would not have to, you know, take two days off of work, right? And, um, and it would be covered by insurance. And I think, you know, that's the goal and, and that would be fantastic. And for me, I think one of my biggest hopes within the psychedelic space is that advancements here are rooted kind of in this interdisciplinary framework in that research, for instance, that's conducted in the lab and academia is also bridged alongside up and coming work within the startup biotech culture, as well as bridges between academia, biotech investors, and of course, healthcare professionals that are actually administering these compounds, legal experts, nonprofits, et cetera. And so hopefully that, you know, there's this kind of holistic understanding instead of this segmented approach into so many of the different moving parts within the psychedelic renaissance. And of course, that the, con that the components that warrant caution are treated with extra diligence. So one example of that for me that I care about in particular is that with so many different um, kind of companies of interests, clinics within different territories, how do we actually standardize treatment regimens across these differences in order to ensure that treatment is delivered in the most efficacious um, way in order to kind of, like I just mentioned, standardize these different uh, potentially very therapeutic uh, treatment plans. And so with that said, we're really excited to kind of share our enthusiasm within the space with all of you and hope that you enjoy all of these different interviews within all of these pioneering experts within the industry. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Adrian, for doing this with me. <laughs> thank you, Sophie, for doing this with me. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Today's episode was produced by your hosts, Adrian Joe and Sophie Rogers. You can find out more about Psych Exchange on our website at www.psychexchangepodcast.com. If you liked this podcast, please share it with your friends. The music for the show was written and produced by our friend and talented musician, Brand, who you can find on Spotify, SoundCloud, and social media. Our website was developed by friend and expert web developer, Colin Mackey, who you can find at www.mackeydev.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time.